Chapter Eighteen, Ascent of the Great Peak of Cameroons, Continued. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Travels in West Africa, by Mary H. Kingsley. Chapter Eighteen. Ascent of the Great Peak of Cameroons. Wherein is recounted how the voyager sets out from Buea and goes up through the forest belt to the top of the southeast crater of Mongo Malobe, with many dilemmas and disasters that befell on the way. September twenty second. Wake at five. Fine morning. Fine view towards Cameroon River. The broad stretch of forest below and the water-eaten mangrove swamps below that are all a glorious indigo flushed with rose color from the death of the night, as Kiva used to call the dawn. No one stirring till six, when people come out of the huts and stretch themselves and proceed to begin the day in the African's usually perfunctory, listless way. My crew are worse than the rest. I go and hunt cook out. He props open one eye with difficulty and yawns a yawn that nearly cuts his head in two. I wake him up with a shock by saying I mean to go on up today and want my chop and to start one time. He goes off and announces my horrible intention to the others. Kefala soon arrives upon the scene full of argument. You know sabe this be Sunday, ma? says he in a tone that tells he considers this settles the matter. I sabe, unconcernedly, Kefala scratches his head for other argument, but he has opened with his heavy artillery, which being repulsed, throws his rear lines into confusion. Bum, the headman, then turns up, sound asleep inside, but quite ready to come. Bum, I find, is always ready to do what he is told, but has no more original ideas in his head than there are in a chair leg. Kefala, however, by scratching other parts of his anatomy diligently, has now another argument ready. The two Bakwiris are sick with abdominal trouble that requires rum and rest, and one of the other boys has hot foot. Herr Liebert now appears upon the scene and says I can have some of his laborers, who are now more or less idle, because he cannot get about much with his bad foot to direct them, so I give the Bakwiris and the two hot-foot cases books to take down to Herr von Luck, who will pay them off for me, and seeing that they have each a good day's rations of rice, beef, etc., eliminate them from the party. In addition to the laborers, I am to have as a guide Sasu, a black sergeant who went up the peak with the officers of the hyena, and I get my breakfast, and then hang about, watching my men getting ready very slowly to start. Off we get about eight, and start with all good wishes and grim prophecies from Herr Liebert. Led by Sasu and accompanied by Tomorrow, a man who has come to Buea from some interior unknown district, and who speaks no known language, and whose business it is to help to cut a way through the bush, we go down the path we came and cross the river again. This river seems to separate the final mass of the mountain from the foothills on this side. Immediately after crossing it we turn up into the forest on the right-hand side, and, tomorrow, cuts through an overgrown track for about half an hour and then leaves us. Everything is reeking wet, and we swish through thick undergrowth and then enter a darker forest, where the earth is rocky and richly decorated with ferns and moss. For the first time in my life 
I see tree-ferns growing wild in luxuriant profusion. What glorious creations they are! Then we get out into the middle of a cocoa plantation. Next to sweet potatoes, the premier abomination to walk through, give me cocos for good all-round tryingness, particularly when they are wet, as is very much the case now. Getting through these, we meet the war-hedge again, and after a conscientious struggle with various forms of vegetation, in a muddled, tangled state, Sasu says, No good. Path don't get stopped up. So we turn and retrace our steps all the way across the river and horrify Herr Leibert by invading his house again. We explain the situation. Grave head shaking between him and Sasu about the practicability of any other route, because there is no other path. I do not like to say so much the better, because it would have sounded ungrateful, but I knew from my Ogoway experiences that a forest that looks from afar a dense black mat is all right underneath, and there is a short path recently cut by Herr Liebert that goes straight up towards the forest above us. It had been made to go to a clearing where ambitious agricultural operations were being inaugurated when Herr Liebert hurt his foot. Up this we go, it is semi-vertical while it lasts, and it ends in a scrubby patch that is to be a plantation. This crossed, we are in the Orwald, and it is more exquisite than words can describe, but not good going, particularly at one spot where a gigantic tree has fallen across a little rocky ravine and has to be crawled under. It occurs to me that this is a highly likely place for snakes, and an absolutely sure find for scorpions, and when we have passed it, three of these latter interesting creatures are observed on the load of blankets which is fastened on to the back of Kefala. We inform Kefala of the fact on the spot. A volcanic eruption of entreaty, advice, and admonition results, but we still hesitate. However, the gallant cook tackles them in a sort of tip-cat way with a stick, and we proceed into a patch of long grass beyond which there is a reach of amomums. The winged amomum I see here in Africa for the first time. Horrid, slippery things amomum sticks to walk on when they are lying on the ground, and there is a lot of my old enemy the calamus about. On each side are deep forested dells and ravines, and rocks show up through the ground in every direction, and things in general are slippery, and I wander now and again, as I assume with unnecessary violence a recumbent position, why I came to Africa. But patches of satin-leaved begonias and clumps of lovely tree-ferns reconcile me to my lot. Cook does not feel these forest charms, and gives me notice after an hour's experience of mountain-forest-belt work. What cook would not? As we get higher, we have to edge and squeeze every few minutes through the aerial roots of some tremendous kind of tree, plentiful hereabouts. One of them we passed through, I am sure, would have run any Indian banyan hard for extent of ground covered if it were measured. In the region where these trees are frequent, the undergrowth is less dense than it is lower down. Imagine a vast, seemingly limitless cathedral, with its countless columns covered, nay, composed of the most exquisite dark-green, large-fronded moss, with here and there a delicate fern embedded in it as an extra decoration. The white gauze-like mist comes down from the upper mountain towards us, creeping, twining round, and streaming through the moss-covered tree columns, long bands of it reaching along sinuous, but evenly, for fifty and sixty feet or more, and then ending in a puff like the smoke of a gun. Soon, however, all the mist streams coalesce, 
and make the atmosphere all their own, wrapping us round in a clammy, chill embrace. It is not that wool-blanket smothering affair that we were wrapped in down by Buana, but exquisitely delicate. The difference it makes to the beauty of the forest is just the same difference you would get if you put a delicate veil over a pretty woman's face, or a sack over her head. In fact, the mist here was exceedingly becoming to the forest's beauty. Now and again growls of thunder roll out from and quiver in the earth beneath our feet. Mungo is making a big tornado, and is stirring and simmering it softly so as to make it strong. I only hope he will not overdo it, as he does six times in seven, and make it too heavy to get out on to the Atlantic, where all tornadoes ought to go. If he does, the thing will go and burst on us in this forest to-night. The forest now grows less luxuriant, though still close. We have left the begonias and the tree-ferns, and are in another zone. The trees now, instead of being clothed in rich dark green moss, are heavily festooned with long greenish-white lichen. It pours with rain. At last we reach the place where the sergeant says we ought to camp for the night. I have been feeling the time for camping was very ripe for the past hour, and Kefala openly said as much an hour and a half ago, but he got such scathing things said to him about civilians' legs by the sergeant that I did not air my own opinion. We are now right at the very edge of the timber belt. My headman and three boys are done to a turn. If I had had a bull behind me or Mr. Fildes in front, I might have done another five or seven miles, but not more. The rain comes down with extra virulence as soon as we set to work to start the fire and open the loads. I and Peter have great times getting out the military camp bed from its tight bolster-like case, while Kefala gives advice, until, being irritated by the bed's behavior, I blow up Kefala and send him to chop firewood. However, we get the thing out and put up after cutting a place clear to set it on. Owing to the world being on a stiff slant hereabouts, it takes time to make it stand straight. I get four stakes cut and drive them in at the four corners of the bed, and then stretch over it a Herr von Luck's waterproof ground sheet, guide the ends out to pegs with string, feel profoundly grateful to both Herr Labert for the bed and Herr von Luck for the sheet, and place the baggage under the protection of the German government's two belongings. Then I find that the boys have not got a fire with all their fuss, and I have to demonstrate to them the lessons I have learned among the fans regarding fire-making. We build a firehouse, and then all goes well. I notice they do not make a fire fan fashion, but build it in a circle. Evidently, one of the laborers from Buea, named Senya, is a good man. Equally evidently, some of my other men are only fit to carry sandwich boards for Day and Martin's blacking. I dine luxuriously off tinned fat pork and hot tea, and then, feeling still hungry, go on to tinned herring. Excellent thing, tinned herring but I have to hurry, because I know I must go up through the edge of the forest onto the grassland, and see how the country is made during the brief period of clearness that almost always comes just before nightfall. So, leaving my boys comfortably seated round the fire having their evening chop, I pass up through the heavily lichen-tasseled fringe of the forest belt into deep jungle grass and up a steep and slippery mound. In front the mountain face rises like a wall from behind a set of hillocks, similar to the one I am at present on. The face of the wall to the right and left has two dark clefts in it. The peak itself is not visible from where I am. It rises behind and beyond the wall. 
I stay taking compass bearings and look for an easy way up for tomorrow. My men by now have missed their ma, and are yelling for her dismally, and the night comes down with great rapidity, for we are in the shadow of the great mountain mass, so I go back into camp. Alas, how vain are often our most energetic efforts to remove our fellow creatures from temptation! I knew a Sunday down among the soldiers would be bad for my men, and so came up here, and now, if you please, these men have been at the rum, because Bum, the head man, has been too done up to do anything but lie in his blanket and feed. Kefala is laying down the law with great detail and unction. Cook, who has been very low in his mind all day, is now weirdly cheerful, and sings incoherently. The other boys, who want to go to sleep, threaten to burst him if he no finish. It's no good. Cook carols on and soon succumbing to the irresistible charm of music, the other men have to join in the choruses. The performance goes on for an hour, growing woollier and woollier in tone, and then dying out in sleep. I write by the light of an insect-haunted lantern, sitting on the bed, which is tucked in among the trees some twenty yards away from the boys' fire. There is a bird whistling in a deep, rich note that I have never heard before. September 23rd Morning gloriously fine. Route the boys out and start at seven with Sasu, headman, Senya, black boy, Kefala, and a cook. The great southeast wall of the mountain in front of us is quite unflecked by cloud, and in the forest are thousands of bees. We notice that the tongues of forest go up the mountain in some places a hundred yards or more above the true line of the belt. These tongues of forest get more and more heavily hung with lichen and the trees thinner and more stunted towards their ends. I think that these tongues are always in places where the wind does not get full play. All those near our camping-place on this south-east face are so. It is evidently not a matter of soil, for there is ample soil on this side above where the trees are, and then again on the western side of the mountain, the side facing the sea, the timber line is far higher up than on this. Nor again is it a matter of angle that makes the timber line here so low, for those forests on the Sierra del Cristal were growing luxuriantly over far steeper grades. There is some peculiar local condition just here evidently, or the forest would be up to the bottom of the wall of the crater. I am not unreasonable enough to expect it to grow on that, but its conduct in staying where it does requires explanation. We clamber up into the long jungle-grass region, and go on our way across a series of steep-sided, rounded grass hillocks, each of which is separated from the others by dry, rocky water-courses. The effects produced by the seed-ears of the long grass round us are very beautiful. They look a golden-brown, and each ear and leaf is gemmed with dewdrops, and those of the grass on the sides of the hillocks at a little distance off show a soft brown pink. After half an hour's climb, when we are close at the base of the wall, I observe the men ahead halting, and coming up with them find Monrovia boy down a hole, a little deep blowhole in which I am informed water is supposed to be. But Monrovia soon reports, no leave. I now find we have not a drop of water either with us or in camp, and now this hole has proved dry. There is, says the sergeant, no chance of getting any more water on this side of the mountain, save down the river at Buea. 
This means failure unless tackled, and it is evidently a trick played on me by the boys, who intentionally failed to let me know of this want of water before leaving Buea, where it seems they have all learnt it. I express my opinion of them in four words, and send Monrovia boy, who I know is to be trusted, back to Buea with a scribbled note to Herr Liebert asking him to send me up two demijohns of water. I send Cook with him as far as the camp in the forest we have just left, with orders to bring up three bottles of soda water I have left there, and to instruct the men there that as soon as the water arrives from Buea they are to bring it on up to the camp I mean to make at the top of the wall. The men are sulky, and Sasu, Peter, Kefala, and Headman say they will wait and come on as soon as Cook brings the soda water, and I go on and presently see Senya and Black Boy are following me. We get on to the intervening hillocks, and commence to ascend the face of the wall. The angle of this wall is great, and its appearance from below is impressive from its enormous breadth, and its abrupt rise without a bend or droop for a good two thousand feet into the air. It is covered with short yellowish grass, through which the burnt-up, scoriaceous lava rock protrudes in rough masses. I got on up the wall, which, when you are on it, is not so perpendicular as it looks from below my desire being to see what sort of country there was on the top of it, between it and the final peak. Sasu had reported to Herr Liebert that it was a wilderness of rock in which it would be impossible to fix a tent, and spoke vaguely of caves. Here and there on the way up I come to holes similar to the one my men had been down for water. I suppose these holes have been caused by gases from an under-hot layer of lava bursting up through the upper cool layer. As I get higher, the grass becomes shorter and more sparse, and the rocks more ostentatiously displayed. Here and there among them are sadly tried bushes, bearing a beautiful yellow flower like a large yellow wild rose, only scentless. It is not a rose at all, I may remark. The ground where there is any basin made by the rocks grows a great sedum with a grand head of a whitey pink flower, also a tall herb with soft downy leaves silver-gray in color, and having a very pleasant aromatic scent, and here and there patches of good honest parsley. Bright blue, flannelly-looking flowers stud the grass in sheltered places, and a very pretty large green orchid is plentiful. Above us is a bright blue sky with white cloud rushing hurriedly across it to the northeast and a fierce sun. When I am about halfway up, I think of those boys, and, wanting rest, sit down by an inviting-looking rock grotto, with a patch of the yellow-flowered shrub growing on its top. Inside it grow little ferns and mosses, all damp, but, alas, no water-pool, and very badly I want water by this time. Below me a belt of white cloud had now formed, so that I could see neither the foothillocks nor the forest, and presently out of this mist came Senya, toiling up, carrying my black bag. "'Where them black boy live?' said I. "'Black boy say him foot be tired too much,' said Senya, as he threw himself down in the little shade the rock could give. I took a cupful of sour claret out of the bottle in the bag, and told Xenia to come on up as soon as he was rested, and meanwhile to yell to the others down below and tell them to come on. Senya did, but sadly observed, Softly, softly, still hurts the snail, and I left him and went on up the mountain. When I had got to the top of the rock under which I had sheltered from the blazing sun, the mist opened a little, and I saw my men looking like so many little dolls. They were still sitting on the hillock where I had left them. Bue showed from this elevation well. The guard-house and the mission-house, like little houses, 
in a picture, and the make of the ground on which Buea station stands came out distinctly as a ledge or terrace extending for miles north-northeast and south-southwest. This ledge is a strange-looking piece of country covered with low bush, out of which rise great isolated white-stemmed cotton trees. Below and beyond this is a denser band of high forest, and again below this stretches the vast mangrove swamp fringing the estuary of the Cameroons, Mungo, and Bimbia rivers. It is a very noble view, giving one an example of the peculiar beauty one oft-times gets in this West African scenery, namely colossal sweeps of color. The mangrove swamps look today like a vast damson-colored carpet threaded with silver where the waterways ran. It reminded me of a scene I saw once near Cabinda, when on climbing to the top of a hill I suddenly found myself looking down on a sheet of violent pink more than a mile long and a half mile wide. This was caused by a climbing plant having taken possession of a valley full of trees, whose tops it had reached and then spread and interlaced itself over them to burst into profuse, glorious, lamburnum-shaped bunches of flowers. After taking some careful compass bearings for future use regarding the Rumbi and Oman range of mountains, which were clearly visible and which looked fascinatingly like my beloved Sierra del Cristal, I turned my face to the wall of Mungo and continued the ascent. The sun which was blazing was reflected back from the rocks in scorching rays, but it was more bearable now because its heat was tempered by a bitter wind. The slope becoming steeper, I gradually made my way towards the left, until I came to a great lane as neatly walled with rock as if it had been made with human hands. It runs down the mountain face, nearly vertically in places and at stiff angles always, but it was easier going up this lane than on the outside rough rock, because the rocks in it had been smoothed by mountain torrents during thousands of wet seasons, and the walls protected one from the biting wind, a wind that went through me, for I had been stewing for nine months and more in tropic and equatorial swamps. Up this lane I went to the very top of the mountain wall, and then, to my surprise, found myself facing a great hillocky, rock-encumbered plain across the other side of which rose the mass of the peak itself, not as a single cone, but as a wall surmounted by several three being evidently the highest among them. I started along the ridge of my wall and went to its highest part, that to the southwest, intending to see what I could of the view towards the sea, and then to choose a place for camping in for the night. When I reached the southwest end, looking westwards, I saw the South Atlantic down below, like a plain of frosted silver. Out of it, barely twenty miles away, rose Fernando Po to its ten thousand one hundred ninety feet, with that majestic grace peculiar to a volcanic island. Immediately below me, some ten thousand feet or so, lay Victoria, with the forested foothills of Mungo Malobe encircling it as a diadem, and Ambas Bay gemmed with rocky islands lying before it. On my left, away southeast, was the glorious stretch of the Cameroon estuary, with a line of white cloud lying very neatly along the course of Cameroon River. In one of the chasms of the mountain wall that I had come up, in the one furthest to the north there was a thunderstorm brewing, seemingly hanging on to or streaming out of the mountain side, a soft billowy mass of dense cream-colored cloud, 
with flashes of golden lightnings playing about in it with soft growls of thunder. Surely Mongol Malobe himself, of all the thousands he annually turns out, never made one more lovely than this. Soon the white mists rose from the mangrove swamp, and grew rose-color in the light of the setting sun, as they swept upwards over the now purple high forests. In the heavens to the north there was a rainbow, vivid in color, one arch of it going behind the peak, the other sinking into the mist sea below. And this mist sea rose and rose towards me, turning from pale rose-color to lavender, and where the shadow of Mungo lay across it to a dull leaden gray. It was soon at my feet, blocking the underworld out, and soon came flowing over the wall-top at its lowest parts, stretching in great spreading rivers over the crater plain, and then these, coalescing everything, was shut out save the two summits, that of Cameroon, close to me, and that of Clarence away on Fernando Po. These two stood out alone, like great island masses made of iron, rising from a formless, silken sea. The space around seemed boundless, and there was in it neither sound nor color, nor anything with form save those two terrific things. It was like a vision, and it held me spellbound as I stood shivering on the rocks, with a white mist round my knees, until into my wool-gathering mind came the memory of those anything but sublime men of mine, and I turned and scuttled off along the rocks, like an agitated ant left alone in a dead universe. I soon found the place where I had come up into the crater plain, and went down over the wall, descending with twice the rapidity but ten times the scratches and grazes of the ascent. I picked up the place where I had left Senya, but no Senya was there, nor came there any answer to my bush call for him, so on I went down towards the place where, hours ago, I had left the men. The mist was denser down below, but to my joy it was warmer than on the summit of the wind-swept wall. I had nearly reached the foot of this wall, and made my mind up to turn in for the night under a rock, when I heard a melancholy croak away in the mist to the left. I went towards it, and found Xenia lost on his own account, and distinctly quaint in manner, and then I recollected that I had been warned Xenia is slightly crazy. Nice situation, this, a madman on a mountain in the mist. Xenia, I found, had no longer got my black bag but in its place a lid of a saucepan and an empty lantern. To put it mildly, this is not the sort of outfit the RGS hints to travelers would recommend for African exploration. Senya reported that he gave the bag to Black Boy, who shortly afterwards disappeared, and that he had neither seen him nor any of the others since, and didn't expect to this side of Shramandazi. In a homicidal state of mind I made tracks for the missing ones followed by Xenia. I thought, mayhap, they had grown on to the rocks they had sat upon so long, but presently, just before it became quite dark, we picked up the place we had left them in, and found there only an empty soda-water bottle. Xenia poured out a muddled mass of observations to effect that they got fright too much about them water palaver. I did not linger to raise a monument to them, but I said I wished they were in a condition to require one, and we went on over our hillocks with more confidence now that we knew we had stuck well to our unmarked track. The moving moon went up the sky, and nowhere did abide. Softly she was going up, and a star or two beside. 
only she was a young and inefficient moon, and although we were below the thickest of the mist band it was dark. Finding our own particular hole in the forest wall was about as easy as finding one particular rabbit hole in an unknown hayfield in the dark, and the attempt to do so afforded us a great deal of varied exercise. I am obliged to be guarded in my language, because my feelings now are only down to one degree below boiling point. The rain now began to fall, thank goodness, and I drew the thick ears of grass through my parched lips as I stumbled along over the rugged lumps of rock hidden under the now waist-high jungle grass. Our camp-hole was pretty easily distinguishable by daylight, for it was on the left-hand side of one of the forest tongues, the grassland running down like a lane between two tongues here, and just over the entrance three conspicuously high trees showed. But we could not see these picking up points in the darkness, so I had to keep getting Senya to strike matches and hold them in his hat while I looked at the compass. Presently we came full tilt up against a belt of trees which I knew from these compass observations was our tongue of forest belt, and I fired a couple of revolver shots into it whereabouts I judged our camp to be. This was instantly answered by a yell from human voices in chorus, and towards that yell in a slightly amiable, a very slightly amiable state of mind I went. I will draw a veil over the scene, particularly over my observations to those men. They did not attempt to deny their desertion, but they attempted to explain it, each one saying that it was not he but the other boy who got fright too much. I closed the palaver promptly with a brief but lurid sketch of my opinion on the situation, and ordered food for not having had a thing save that cup of sour claret since 6.30 a.m., and it being now 11 p.m., I felt sinkings. Then arose another beautiful situation before me. It seems when Cook and Monrovia got back into camp this morning, Master Cook was seized with one of those attacks of a desire to manage things that produce such awful results in the African servant and sent all the beef and rice down to Buea to be cooked, because there was no water here to cook it. Therefore the men have got nothing to eat. I had a few tins of my own food, and so gave them some, and they became as happy as kings in a few minutes, listening and shouting over the terrible adventures of Xenia, who is posing as the hero of the great Cameroon. I get some soda water from the two bottles left and some tinned herring, and then write out two notes to Herr Liebert asking him to send me three more demijohns of water and some beef and rice from the store, promising faithfully to pay for them on my return. I would not prevent those men of mine from going up that peak above me after their touching conduct today. Oh, no, not for worlds, dear things. End of chapter 18 Recorded by Kainde of Bartrek.com.